Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We don't always stop to contemplate it, but the days we're living through in the legal and political realm are not simply singular, but downright weird. We are nearing a federal indictment on serious felony charges of the former President of the United States, who is also the likely Republican nominee in 2024. He is responding in the political world in ways that only put him in a deeper hole in the legal one, setting up a seismic showdown of the two worlds right around the time of the next general election season. The White House and Republican Congress have just come closer to a disastrous default on the United States debt than at any other time in history. The crisis was averted by a last-minute legislative package that, in the words of a prominent congressman, was the weirdest legislation that anybody has ever been asked to vote on since I got here. The 2024 election is shaping up to be a race between three prominent candidates, none of whom is particularly popular with the American public. On the Republican side, the strange dynamic persists in which the challengers must continually praise the frontrunner and, God forbid, never criticize him, while hoping that something comes along to take him out. We are in the deep middle of a long, strange trip with no clear knowledge of the endpoint. To try to make sense of one of the flat-out weirdest political and legal seasons in our nation's history, we're pleased to welcome back to Talking Feds three of the country's most incisive analysts of government. And they are Luke Broadwater, a congressional reporter in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. Luke began his career at the Baltimore Sun, covering the Maryland State House and Baltimore City Hall, where he won the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for Local Reporting and a George Polk Award for Political Reporting. And now he has his hands full most every day, breaking scoop after scoop about Trump and Congress. Luke, thanks so much for returning to Talking Feds. Thanks for having me. Jason Kander, the president of the National Expansion at Veterans Community Project, a nonprofit dedicated to fighting veteran suicide and homelessness. After serving in the Army in Afghanistan, Jason was elected to the Missouri State Legislature and later became Missouri Secretary of State in 2012. Jason hosts the popular and excellent uh, podcast, Majority 54, and we covered his book that I highly, highly recommend, Invisible Storm, A Soldier's Memoir of Politics and PTSD, in a Talking Books episode last year. Jason, so good to see you back. Thank you for having me back. And Jen Rubin, an opinion columnist for The Washington Post, an MSNBC contributor, and I'm happy to say a regular on Talking Feds well-known to this podcast. Prior to her career in journalism, Jen worked as a labor law attorney for some two decades. She's the author of the book, Resistance, How Women Save Democracy from Donald Trump, and pretty much the quickest gun in the East or West in her almost daily columns. Jen, thanks so much for returning to Talking Feds. My pleasure. And I'm now co-host of Jen Rubin's Green Room. So you're all invited on. Oh, well, well, tell us a little more, please. Sorry, I should have mentioned. That's quite all right. I figure that 
like Harry, I have many other friends where the best part of my week is chit-chatting with them, gossiping, dishing the dirt, pointing out things that don't quite uh, seem right for print. And that's the premise of the program, really, is chit-chatting with my favorite friends and uh, talking about subjects that always don't make front page or even the back page. So we're going to talk about race, we're going to talk about religion, but really sort of about kind of the inside scoop on Washington. So very gossipy, very informal, very chit-chatty. should be a lot of fun. The Green Room, everyone check it out from Jen's long and rich Rolodex. Okay. The week brought some apparently important pieces of the puzzle of the Mar-a-Lago documents case that special counsel Jack Smith is building against the former president. And at least many commentators see us in a true final countdown, sort of Cape Canaveral style, to imminent charges. So where are we in the investigation? We keep getting snippets of revelations, but they're from before. Anybody have any sense of just what juncture we're at? Well, I think we're certainly closer to the end uh, than the beginning or even the middle. Well, there's a bold statement. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) So I think we're, if not days, Mm -hmm. at least a couple weeks away, perhaps. Um, I think we're that imminent. He seems to have talked, and by he, I mean Jack Smith and his team, have talked to just about everyone you've wanted to talk to. And granted, we don't always know who's going into the grand jury room or not, but it's hard to think of witnesses that have not been interviewed. We've also had now revelations that suggest that Jack Smith for some time has had in his possession recordings that could potentially be devastating. And although we're learning about this, Jack Smith has certainly had them for a very, very long time. And by the way, many more recordings than the one that has made news this week, because apparently Trump was taping all of these interviews, his interviewers, his biographers, his aides. This never happens to prosecutors, by the way. Harry, I am absolutely convinced that your entire career, you never had a case in which you were handed this much evidence and said, okay, don't screw it up, Harry. But Jack Smith has a ton of stuff. So I get the sense that there's some toing and froing between the special counsel's office and Trump's counsel. We saw that letter that was released suggesting that he wanted to talk to the attorney general, which would be improper during the uh, special counsel's investigation. He should be talking to Jack Smith. But aside from that, I kind of think this thing is almost tied up with a bow. I would be stunned, beyond stunned, if there was not a recommendation to prosecute and if the attorney general did not go forward. This appears to be a really strong case. Yeah, I mean, all the indications we're getting is that this is wrapping up as close to the end. If you talk to Trump's allies on Capitol Hill who speak to him directly, they think he's going to be charged in all three cases. Obviously, he was charged by Alvin Bragg, but also in Georgia and and by Jack Smith. And if you listen to Bill Barr, who unprovoked will just offer his opinion, he'll be asked about something else. And then he'll say, well, I think the documents case, they really... It really looks like serious evidence of obstruction there. He's been saying it for months, right? (laughs) Yes, yeah, for months. And just, you know, for for people who are tuning in and are super familiar with it, we're talking about basically 20 months where the first the National Archives and then the Justice Department tried to get back various documents that Donald Trump shouldn't have anymore. He should give back as the property of the American people. And there's a combination of stalling and dissembling and in the prosecutor's view 
you know, I think some willful misdirections or, and possibly even lies by Donald Trump and perhaps even some of his lawyers. And that's why you see things like a ruling, a secret ruling that the crime fraud exception has been pierced, that there's evidence of crimes in a lawyer's notes. And now we know that they have all these details notes from one of his lawyers. And so, you know, it does seem like they're just amassing more and more. And the latest is this recording that they have where Donald Trump supposedly, according to what you know, the, the reporting that we're hearing, openly talks about taking a classified document with him about Iran and shows apparently, you know, no remorse and just an acknowledgement that he's taken this. And then when they search for this document, they can't find it. So no one knows where it is. It's not, it's not back in the possession of the National Archives. And so those are the type of problems that the, that the prosecutors are encountering. But it does seem like they're, they're building this case up day by day. You know, Harry, the whole thing makes me think of is just like the fact that when you're no longer able to pardon people, how, how few friends you seem to have. <laughs> because we've sort of settled into this place where it's like, well, you know, Trump is so slippery. Like, they're never really going to get him. But... I mean, now that he's like just a retired golf hobbyist who lives in Florida and has presidential aspirations and doesn't have the ability to pardon folks and doesn't have his Twitter account really still, so he's got his truth social stuff, but he can't really rain down like the public hatred on people the way that he could before. He's not like a one-man cancel machine the way he was. It's just really interesting how many people are willing to cooperate with law enforcement in that situation. And he ends up being kind of like your regular bad guy. And that's not good for him. And Luke's paper raised the possibility of the most intriguing cooperator of all should it happen. The mysterious and, to my mind, inculpated next only to Trump, Mark Meadows. Just a couple quick points. So, Jen, I've thought since about Evan Corcoran, that's like feels like about a month ago now, that there wasn't much left to do. Then we find out he spoke with every maintenance person, spoke for a long time to the guy who helped Walt Nato move boxes out, spoke with Mark Milley. I, I literally, scratching my head, can't think of who else might be left. And we are, to me, it's been a significant fact that they're not meeting now. So it just seems to be natural that he had probably been writing it all the way along, but that there's a big honking prosecution memo, the kind of memo you serve up to the attorney general with a recommendation. Yeah, this is the worst kind of criminal who has gazillion witnesses. Jack Smith is talking about the guy who ran the videotape. He's talking to the guy who moved the boxes. He's talking to the guy who saw the guy who moved the boxes. He's talking to all the lawyers. Because Trump has no conception of his own culpability, he is a one-man confession and a one-man creator of incriminating information. So no matter what his lawyers do, no matter what cockamamie excuse they come up with, the magical decertification, there's Trump saying, I should have decertified this stuff and yeah, I really shouldn't have taken it and I really shouldn't be giving it to you, but here's what I said and starts shuffling around and reading from classified material. It's somewhat comical, but deadly serious. Among the weirdest aspects of this weird story, among our three weird stories of the week, is we're obviously on two tracks, always have been Trump seeming a kind of one-trick pony, just playing it in a political way that he does. And it sure seems, as Jen says, that he's 
a first-class boob thinking about his political fortunes and every week digging himself into a deeper and deeper legal hole and making his lawyers both scream at each other and tear their own hair out. But does either of you, Luke or Jason, think we're missing something? Do you think he's made some shrewd calculation that his only way out is political victory, at least of the nomination, and he's crazy like uh, Fox, or, or really is it as always, no profit to try to inject strategy or intelligence into Trump's actions. Well, forgive me if (laughs) I've said this on this show before, but here's my my little riff on all of this is that Everybody likes to, because Trump seems to always escape, yeah. everybody wants to try to assign, not everybody, but you, people are constantly like, well, that's the genius of Trump. And the truth is, like, I mean, genius is a strong word here, but if we're going to say, what is the move of Trump that always seems to work? The move of Trump, if you want to characterize it as something, is that if anything, Donald Trump plays to his win scenario, and Donald Trump is never afraid to admit to himself how narrow his win scenario is and then put all of his money on that win scenario. And here's what I mean. A lot of political candidates, they get very married to the idea of hedging their bets on several different things. And it's frequently why people in close races don't win, because they just don't have the chutzpah to be like, I know that the one scenario where I win is narrow and I'm putting everything on it because it feels risky to them, right? Because what if they're wrong about that win scenario? Donald Trump has always understood when his win scenario is very narrow, he puts everything on it, right? Which is why people are constantly trying to figure, what's his strategy? And his strategy is very simple. He's got one win scenario. And in this case, his one win scenario is he gets elected president again and he develops some immunity as a result and he can claim executive privilege. He can do those things. It's the only way he buys himself four years where he doesn't go to prison. And I think he knows that right now. And his problem is that when you are Donald Trump and you have spent your entire life building up the name Trump and making it so that you only surround yourself with people who treat you like you're the most important person in the universe, that means that they remember literally every interaction with you. Or tape it. Or they tape it because it's very meaningful to them. If you bring somebody into the world of Mar-a-Lago and you are the king of Mar-a-Lago, it means that an offhanded comment that you make to a maintenance person they go home and they tell their spouse about it. That's the problem with launching a massive criminal conspiracy and not being an anonymous nobody. <laughs> and so, you know, if you're ever going to do that, listeners, try not to be a person with your name on stuff like buildings. And if he wins, he can pardon himself, right? From the federal cases, not from the state ones. So. Is that not true? I think there's a big question about that. That's never been tested. Well, I know he can't pardon himself from Georgia or New York, right? Yeah. I I could be wrong, but I thought that the DOJ case, there was a chance he could. Well, there obviously is no case on this because we've never had a Donald Trump. You got to go back to look at the Constitution. The pardon power seems to be rather open-ended. On the other hand, it came in a context of English common law in which pardon were extended by the monarch or by uh, royalty, not to themselves, but to others. And the word self-pardon is kind of a made-up word. Pardon is a transitive verb. You pardon someone for something. So this is a gambit that he will play. There is absolutely no case law on this, but I think it's a pretty bad case. Frankly, 
if there was ability to kind of self-pardon, why didn't Richard Nixon do it? So talk about the win scenario. This is like picking the long horse of the long horse legal theory that has never been tested, that goes against common sense and really the position of the OLC, which is the Office of Legal Counsel, which says you can't prosecute a president in office, but you can prosecute him outside of office. Well, what does that mean if he can then pardon himself? Then he never gets prosecuted for anything? If you take the OLC position seriously, that you can always prosecute a uh, president later, then you can't have a self-pardon because there's never a prosecution. Okay. And so my thinking, first, people, I think, were mistaken about their sense of the breadth of the pardon power. And this is one of those, as Jen says, that are you know on a kind of borderline. But the big principle in the Constitution in so many places is a man can't be a judge of his own cause. And I think there'd be a strong argument against it. But I don't think it matters. I think if he's president, he escapes. Because the guy is 76 years old, and I think the Supreme Court would hold and correctly hold that as long as he's president, everything else has to be suspended. So whatever has occurred, we put on hold for at least four years. Now, you know, we're now talking 82, 83. You know, he, he reaches a point where it moots. I'll just put it that way. So he doesn't try to govern from jail because the Supreme Court actually says you don't have to. The pardon thing, I agree, is dicey. But Jason, I think you've identified, I don't know if Trump has or maybe he's just intuited, but I think that is his one channel. And yeah, if he becomes the next president, I for sure all bets are off. Trump's life motto is just get to tomorrow. <laughs> well, yeah, or, or five o'clock. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just get to later today, just get to tomorrow. And that's what I mean. The win yeah. scenario is become president. And like, I don't know if, if I can't pardon <laughs> myself, well, then Vice President Kerry Lake will pardon me as I resign. Yeah. You know what I mean? What kind of time would Trump be looking at? Like if, if the case is what we generally think it is, which is... He obstructs justice with regards to classified documents and presidential records, if that's ultimately what the charge is. I assume that's not a lengthy criminal sentence. Oh, yeah, it could be. Jen, maybe you want to speak to the possibility of espionage. Act. Right. The espionage penalties are very stiff. We could be looking at 20 years per count. And we not only now have retention violation, but we have a dissemination violation, meaning that he has shared the most classified materials with other people. And that's a big no-no. There's also the obstruction, which can be five or 10 years a shot. But I think we get off track when we think about how he can be penalized. I don't think he's actually going to see the inside of his cell. Right, that's the I issue. think he is a former president. He has Secret Service protection. I think we're looking at him living out the rest of his life in an apartment in Trump Tower. They shouldn't let him stay at Mar-a-Lago, to put it mildly, but he's not going to physically go to a prison or don orange jumpsuits. And he is 76 years old. So I think we're talking kind of a permanent state or a very lengthy state, probably the rest of his natural life in essentially house arrest is, I think, what we would we'll be looking at. I mean, look, that seems like a Solomonic solution, and I have trouble seeing, you know, which we reach, say, in the Nixon case. But it is going to be tricky. Everyone, you know, embraces this mantra, no person is treated any different, etc. And to answer your question, Luke, at least analogous cases, first of all, there's a big question, well, 
I see it as a fairly big question whether they will charge the Espionage Act case. We can talk about that, but I'll just identify myself as in the minority with some very brilliant commentators on the other side. But if you put that to the side for now, I think you'd be looking, if you look at analogous cases, in the three-year range, say, four-year range, so not that huge. On the other hand, Wow, as Jen says, just the the national prospect of you know the doors closing behind him, and but there's going to be a lot of a lot of push for just that under how do you treat him differently. My best guess is that I agree he doesn't see the inside of a jail cell, and yet the legal system I'm not sure if it has a solution that allows it. You know, maybe a district court judge just goes with a crazy downward departure and the Court of Appeals doesn't reverse, but it feels like a political solution, maybe even a a condign political solution. But he's now in the jaws of the law, and I'm not sure how he gets out of doing time if he's convicted by just sheer legal judgment. Maybe there's a clemency uh, possibility of, you know. Right. I mean, we also don't know exactly how this is going to be charged. There are over 100 documents that are at issue. They could charge on every single one, whether a judge would accept that or a rule, particularly in a first-time offender, that they should be served concurrently. But the charging document is going to look horrible. It is going to make Alvin Bragg look like you know an invitation to a birthday party. So I think this is like serious, like a heart attack. But one thing I would say is on the theory of... I'll get the the presidency and I'll pardon myself. I think he may not have thought through the timing all that well. <laughs> you think not? <laughs> yeah, let's say just calibrated. For sake it. of argument, Monday, <laughs> Jack Smith indicts. It's a long time between then, and it wouldn't be the election, it would be the inauguration date. So technically he'd have till January of 2025. That's a long time to try. He could be in jail already. Now, then you get into these weirdo scenarios that can he serve from the presidency in jail and all of this other kind of stuff. But I don't think we should rule out the possibility that he could be convicted by somebody before we get to the next president being sworn in. I think there is a real possibility of a conviction, but not incarceration by then, because he would be on appeal. That would last for a while. But man, what a game changer. And he can be president from jail, right? Like you can serve... There's nothing in the Constitution. This is what I was saying before. Yeah. You Technically, yeah. Eugene Debs ran from jail. I think, actually, the Supreme Court would find a, a you know a sort of free-floating principle that it's, you just can't do that to the people of the United States. And so that if he's a convict, you put it on hold, as they did. Remember, the argument and the OLC is you can't prosecute someone while they're president, so you suspend. So it's not crazy. A president in jail. Think think of, you know, the meetings of the heads of state. <laughs> That's what I was just thinking about. Like, I'm just picturing, like, he and Putin are crossing <laughs> one another, and there's, like, plexiglass, and they're having to speak to each other on that little wired phone. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Time's up. Give him a kiss. <laughs> yeah. right. right. And then, like, at the end of the meeting, Trump puts his palm on, on the glass, and then Putin very dramatically puts his palm onto Trump's, and there's, like, a longing goodbye. Right. And, uh, I want uh, but, the movie but, but rights then again, to with, this. With the international yeah. court indictments, I don't know <laughs> right. that Putin's going to be able to meet him anywhere. So right. I guess it's going to be, 
I don't know who it's going to It's going to be Erdo- Erdogan or somebody. Yeah. All right. With that weird, unprecedented image to this weird, unprecedented story, we I think we leave it for now. I'll note there are people out there that, all, that everyone respects saying, you know, it'll be any day. My gut feels that not any day, more like any week. But anyway, it's a coming, and I detect no dissent in this group that charges are nigh. All right, let's go to the next weird, weird story. I'll quote Jamie Raskin here. The weirdest legislation that anybody has ever been asked to vote on since I got here. Nobody seems to support all of it. Everyone has problems with parts of it, but the macro alternative is absolutely indigestible. Well put, Raskin. So the default crisis came to a fairly swift end last week. The House on Wednesday, the Senate on Thursday, Biden on Friday, Passed the deal, hammered out over a couple weeks by the White House and the House Republicans to ha, suspend the debt ceiling and set federal spending limits. Jan, let me start with you again, because your assessment is that Biden got a far better deal than the media expected or that they've given him credit for. Can you elaborate? Yeah. When you look at where the Republicans started, which was essentially a rollback of Biden's first couple of years dramatic cuts in discretionary non-defense spending. They didn't get any of that. And when you really kind of drill down on the things they got, there's a lot less than meets the eye. You look at these new work requirements. Well, it turns out that because there were so many changes made, more people will probably be on food stamps than there were before because they take some people off and they put some people on. The clawback of some of the money that went to the IRS is also less than meets the eye. There's a lot of discretion in there for the IRS as to the timing. So by the time that the money gets shifted to other people, we may be well down the road. You talk to the IRS people, you talk to the administration, and nobody is going to not get hired to help enforce the, the code because of this deal. So what did what did they get? What did the Republicans get? They kind of got the principle that Biden had to come to the table and sit down with them. Well, Biden was going to sit down with them as soon as they won the House. So I'm left perplexed as to what they think this great victory is. So I think the play here was Biden was willing to settle for substance and let Kevin McCarthy and um, some of the Republicans say whatever the heck they wanted about the deal. They were not going to toot their own horn. They were not going to rebut the natural inclination in coverage to say, well, each side got something. And the Republicans who wanted the deal were going to spin this as a great accomplishment that never would have happened if Kevin McCarthy hadn't been there. And the irony is the only ones who are really telling the truth are the Freedom Caucus who are saying, we got nothing. (laughs) For once, they have stumbled onto the truth, I think. So that's my take. Luke, you've been all over this from the start and where I've started every morning on it. Kudos for all your coverage. So let's follow up on this McCarthy point. At least from the right, he's getting bashed as feckless, yet his deal query how strong it is, as Jen says, but goes through. It looks as if his speakership is safe. Can he legitimately claim a victory here? Right. Well, I think Jen's right with her analysis that I think Shalanda Young got in that room and a virile veteran of these negotiations, and she gave the Republicans a litany of items that they could go back and then tout and sell. She's the head of OMB, right? Yes. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Biden's budget director. But that sound good for the right, for the conservatives, 
but actually don't do as much as they purport. So uh, for instance, the CBO scored this based on like good faith, what the Republicans say it does. And they said it say it would be two trillion less in spending. But our analysis is if you only look at the things that are enforceable in it, it's like 130 billion. So it's just a small, very small fraction of what it purports to be. For instance, the IRS agents, they really wanted to repeal the IRS agents and they started at 80 billion and they say there's a deal for 20 billion, but it might actually be 1.4, I'm sorry, a million, it might only be 1.4 million. So, you know, there's, I think, some good negotiating by the White House here. The Freedom Caucus is raising bloody hell over it. And I think in many ways they are correct. You know, the things that they're pointing out that are problems with the bill that aren't actually that conservative are, you look at them, they're backed up by the facts. But I do think Kevin McCarthy does emerge from this with a win, right? Like he, nobody thought he could get all the Republicans to vote for a debt ceiling increase. And he got two thirds of them. And that might be a weak victory to like not have a default. But in this Republican conference, which has shifted so far to the right, and a lot of these guys never want to vote for any debt ceiling increase, the fact that he did give them enough cover to go ahead and have two thirds of them vote for it, he kept government running. We're not defaulting. We're not down the path to fiscal ruin. And I do think he deserves some credit for that. Got all the Dems too, but I think he counted on that probably. Yeah. I was just going to say, it It kind of reminds me of like one of those baseball fights that's not really a fight. I'm going to love like, this one. Candor talk <laughs> baseball. It's got to be good. Okay. You know how usually when like the bench is clear in baseball, nobody the throws a back punch. Pitch, yeah. And yeah. And then, and then like there's always that shot of the bullpen pitchers <laughs> jogging in at a pace <laughs> where they make sure their face is fixed in such a way that they look ready to fight. But they're clearly not really running hard because they're not in a hurry to get there. And they're kind of irritated that they've got to do it to begin with. That to me is like Biden and McCarthy in this deal. It's like Biden was smart about it. You know, Biden was like, okay, I get it. You've inherited some hostages and you don't seem to have any demands. <laughs> so let me go ahead and offer you these demands. Make these your, go tell your folks that these are your demands. And you and I will go into this room and we'll act. It's like that scene from Ocean's Eleven where George Clooney has the guy pretend to slap him around for a while. And he's like, we'll act like. Like we're in this big rowback. You go out on the lawn and you say some stuff about me that's mean, but not too mean. Mm -hmm. All right. You know, and at the end of it, uh, Jennifer's right. The Freedom Caucus is like, this wasn't a real fight. Like what happened here? And meanwhile, Biden is smart enough because I haven't gotten enough metaphors into this not to spike the ball. <laughs> and so what I can't stop thinking about in the whole thing is the bullpen pitchers lazily jogging in to pretend that they want to be in this fight when they really don't. I, I think McCarthy knew he had to put on this show and never wanted to be in this fight to begin with. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, and it helps that McCarthy doesn't believe in anything. Right. He doesn't really want anything. All he wants is to keep the one job he has wanted his entire life, and he did that. And Biden figured that out pretty readily. By the way, that isn't that, unfortunately, the writer's guild is on strike, but that is the Saturday Night Live script that Biden, who is supposed to be like this feeble, right, senile uh, right. guy, is writing the script for Kevin McCarthy. They did that already with Phil Hartman playing Reagan. Exactly. That's exactly that scene. I do know what you mean. But Jason, I, I think 
well, that was a brilliant candor uh, patter, but I think <laughs> right. in particular, hostages with no demands. I mean, when it really came down to it, the it seemed like the idea of some limits were bigger than any individual one, so he could skin them each time. Hold on, Harry, can I say one last thing about the hostages thing? Yeah. My favorite <laughs> moment over yeah. the last few weeks, my favorite moment it, by It's far been a happy fortnight is... for you, has it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, to me, the most hilarious yeah. self-parody of the whole thing yeah. has been the moment at which we seem to be at an impasse two weeks ago, and you had Republican after Republican going on television reciting the same talking point, which was the president it needs to act like a grown-up and come to the table. Right. And the reason that was my favorite is because it was like a bunch of hostage takers being like, look, we took these hostages. We've done our part. <laughs> <laughs> are the police going to start offering up helicopters and buses or are they not? Yeah. <laughs> it was hilarious. That's the movie too. Now what? But Luke, I want I want to return to you because I, it does seem as if, you know, he started a weak place and maybe he's slightly stronger now, but... When McCarthy secured the speakership, it was with what seemed like the thinnest of safety nets that any one person, especially from the Freedom Caucus, could cut him out. So given their discontent, and everyone's agreed it's sort of sensible discontent with the bill, I take it as your view they're not going to try to take him out, at least not now, and why not? Yeah, well, a couple of the Freedom Caucus members have floated the idea that now, you know, there needs to be a reckoning. We need to renegotiate this power sharing agreement. We have to consider the motion to vacate, that sort of thing. The motion to vacate would, to, would right. need to vote to oust McCarthy. Any single member of the House can put that motion on the floor at any right. time. That said, there is no real alternative to McCarthy right now. They don't have anyone waiting in the wings who can get the votes to become speaker. And so if you were to oust McCarthy, the Democrats would have to join in. They might like to see chaos in the Republican Party and disarray. That might be fun. But I think also them, a lot of them would not vote for it. They would think, well, whoever the alternative is will be worse. And we want to have a functioning House. We do need to pass the National Defense Bill and we need to pass the budget at the end of the year and that sort of thing. And we can't have them in total chaos and the House in total chaos all the time. What I'm hearing is they wouldn't have the votes for it. Matt Gates said that the other day that, you know, if we did this, we wouldn't have the votes. So we'd just go on the floor. It would get, I don't know, 40, 50 votes, something like that. And it would lose. And so what's the point in doing that? You just look feckless and weak. I think they don't want it anyway, right? Don't you think they'd rather take pot shots than actually have to nominate one of their own? And look, the agreement that Kevin McCarthy agreed to gave them the power to try to block right. this deal, right? They had the three votes on rules. But Thomas Massey said, you know what? Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to vote for it. So they had the instruments in place to throw the monkey wrench in the works. It, it's structurally set up that they can do it. But they've got to have unity among the far right. And that's often hard to do among even among themselves. Which brilliant about this is the one thing it did was it really called the bluff of that Freedom Caucus. The big threat has always been, whether it was Boehner, whether it was McCarthy, that they would push the eject button and out the speaker would go. And what this really showed is you got about 50 or so really wigged out, really loud members. But unless the other people go along, the people who are super conservative but not crazy, the real crazies can't get anything done. And what happens when the, I don't want to even call them moderates, when the 
super conservative but still sane people enable the crazies, then they do things that seem out of whack. First of all, they elect a speaker who doesn't have any power. They pass an abortion bill that is going nowhere and that people hate. They can have Mickey Mouse hearings where nothing of any consequence comes out. But as soon as they stop playing along, those super conservative but still sane people basically turn off the ignition switch on the Freedom Caucus. So the Freedom Caucus, which has made politics into performance, in actuality has much less power than they're portrayed in the media that they really have on the ground. I think Biden got that to his credit. I think McCarthy did that. He was able to count the votes. And he said, I think I can get about 150 votes. What did he get? 149 when it went to the floor. There was one guy who was saying, I'm not going to give him the 150, damn it. But he came real close. So, you know, there is some political skill there. And, you know, I kind of wish that the rest of the country would kind of take a lesson from this, that the crazies are not the most powerful people, unless they have the difference between a speaker or unless their votes are essential to doing something that we need to do. Because otherwise, it's overdone. The like establishment Republicans always get mad when we call the Freedom Caucus the conservatives, because they're like, they're not the conservatives. So we start using like hard right or hard line. (laughs) It's not actually the views are that different. It's just the tactics are. They never want to compromise. They don't, you know, it's just my way or the highway all the time. I think this is an instructive example in the way the politics of our country have changed in terms of the distinction between power and influence. Because there's a lot of people who are on the hard right who don't really want power because power requires work, right? Like they want to go on TV and yell and they want to like spout off on Twitter and they want to go and they want to have rallies where everybody tells them how great they are. But like, they don't actually want to have to like go. I mean, God, I was in a legislative body and the idea of having to run for a leadership position where you got to like constantly check in with all these other politicians and make them happy. Like, ugh, it makes me want to puke. And I bet it makes them want to puke too. And I just think on both sides of the aisle, there's there are a lot of people who don't technically have power, but do have a lot of influence. And I think that a lot of them are happy having that and, and having the ability to take pot shots like, Matt Gates doesn't want to be the speaker, right? Like he's just excited he's not in jail. And like people keep putting him on TV and he's having a great time. And and I think it's more fun to be a street gang than it is to become president of the Homes Association. And I think they're really enjoying being a street gang. Yeah, look, I think that's really true. And it's an insight, it's a new model of politician. And they're also, of course, able to be, you know, reelected handily in their own districts, but they'd rather go on Fox News and say any kind of crap than actually take credit for a bill. And, you know, I think it either mirrors or drives the electorate. Kevin McCarthy got Jim Jordan, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Thomas Massey to vote for this thing. And, like, those are the three people who could have tanked the deal in various different ways, right? So he has won over some key figures on the right to be part of his team. Those are three performance-oriented people who in the last couple of years have clearly decided that they also want to have power. Jim Jordan especially. Because like his thing, he was like, no, I just I want to do my committee. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is like a great example of like, 
That's the difference between her and Lauren Boebert is she was like, I like this building and I think it's interesting and I want to be part of this. I want to sit at this lunch table now. <laughs> and so I just think there's a fascinating like social dynamic of how that works. And I, I've met Kevin McCarthy and never thought like, that guy's going to be a footnote in history. I never thought that would happen. Like He's not an impressive fellow, but I will give him credit. He figured that stuff out. The other thing that allows this to all work is that the right has a closed universe of media that the line, whatever they need the line to be, can be the line. And no one is going to kind of blow the whistle on the pretense. Fox News essentially didn't cover the dead deal when it finally got down because it wasn't in their interest to point out either that Kevin McCarthy got rolled or that Kevin McCarthy showed that their favorite guests are windbags. So it really helps when you have this kind of state propaganda that seals off viewers from figuring out your full crap. Yeah, it's handy. That's a really good point. It's time now for our sidebar feature, in which we ask a well-known person to explain an important legal concept in the news. And the topic today is ag-gag laws, which are state laws that have proliferated in recent years and that prohibit the recording of any activity on a farm or agricultural operation without the owner's consent. So they effectively prevent the kind of whistleblowing videos that agricultural workers have produced in the past. And to explain about ag-gag laws, we welcome Mary Elizabeth Ellis, an actress best known for her comedic roles as the waitress on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Caroline in New Girl, and Lisa Palmer in Santa Clarita Diet. She also co-wrote and starred in the independent film, A Quiet Little Marriage. I give you Mary Elizabeth Ellis on ag-gag laws. What are ag-gag laws and are they a problem? Ag-gag laws refer to various state laws that criminalize or otherwise prohibit the photographing or videotaping of any activity on a farm or agricultural operation without the owner's consent. The ag in ag-gag is short for agriculture. These gag laws are designed to protect large-scale industrial or factory farms from whistleblowers who aim to make animal welfare, food safety, working conditions, and environmental concerns public knowledge. Ag-gag laws first went into effect in the 1990s following a series of exposés of animal cruelty and abuse by large agricultural companies. Agricultural industry groups responded with a nationwide state-by-state lobbying effort to pass special laws. Over the years, the industry has succeeded in passing ag-gag laws in about 10 states, though two of those were struck down as unconstitutional. Ag-gag laws vary, but they include one or more of these three key elements. One, a prohibition on documentation of agricultural practices. Two, a prohibition on misrepresentations and job applications, which journalists had employed to gain access to big ag facilities. And three, a requirement of immediate reporting of illegal animal cruelty designed to keep journalists from developing major stories. A handful of laws passed after 2011 added restrictions on whistleblowers. Deterring whistleblowers can be particularly effective in big agriculture, which employs large numbers of undocumented immigrants whose vulnerable position makes them more reticent to report unlawful practices. Ag-gag proponents claim the laws protect farmers from activists and eco-terrorists whose photographs and videos can be misleading and harmful. 
Opponents counter that coverage of Big Ag promotes public awareness of horrific practices of animal mistreatment. Such reporting has been instrumental in creating both public pressure for systemic change and in getting existing laws on animal cruelty enforced. There is historic precedent for the view that greater transparency changes both consumer behavior and government oversight. Upton Sinclair's landmark 1906 book, The Jungle, based on his undercover investigation into the filthy and unsafe working conditions throughout Chicago's meatpacking district, shocked the public and led to the Federal Meat Inspection Act, the Pure Food and Drug Act, and ultimately, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. Opponents of ag-gag laws have brought legal challenges claiming that the laws abridge their free speech rights. Two courts have agreed with those claims, striking down the ag-gag laws, and similar challenges are underway in other states. For Talking Feds, I'm Mary Elizabeth Ellis. Thank you, Mary Elizabeth Ellis, for explaining ag-gag laws to us. Most recently, Mary Elizabeth played Mama Anita in the Oscar-nominated Licorice Pizza. And now, a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. My name is Malita Picasso, and I'm a staff attorney at the ACLU's LGBTQ and HIV Project, where we work to defend trans people's safety, dignity, and health care across the country. This includes litigation to protect trans youth in Arkansas, Texas, and other states trying to ban their access to life-saving health care. The onslaught of anti-trans bills pushed through state legislatures throughout the nation is truly unprecedented and directly harms a community that already experiences high rates of violence, harassment, and discrimination. As we track and fight these bills, we need your support. Help us build communities where trans youth feel loved and supported. Visit aclu.org slash LGBTQ to learn more and get involved. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. Today's spirited debate asks to decant or not to decant? That is the question. And the short answer is yes. But when should you decant? First off, what is it? Decanting is the process of slowly pouring liquid, in this case wine, from one container to another without disturbing the sediment at the bottom. It is important to separate the wine from the sediment if there is a lot of it because the sediment can dampen the aromas and flavors in your glass. Decanting wine also helps the wine to aerate, which is the process of introducing oxygen to the liquid. No doubt you've heard or even said the phrase, let the wine breathe. Well, that's what decanting does best, allowing those aromas to expand while making the wine more flavorful and balanced. And it's never a bad idea to decant a young, bold wine. In fact, at Total Wine & More, our guides recommend allowing an hour or two for the process to work best. This is not advisable for mature wines that just need to be separated from their sediment. Leaving a mature wine in a decanter for too long could cause flavors to become muted from too much aeration. Remember to taste your wine while decanting to be sure it is not left aerating for too long. 
And don't forget, the younger and more closed the flavors are when you open the wine, the more it will benefit from the decanting process. Even a few seconds of aeration or a quick swirl in your glass will do wonders to your favorite wine from Total Wine & More. However, the best rule of thumb is, whenever you can, decant. Taste and enjoy when it feels best to you. It's personal. Cheers. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. Speaking of performance-oriented people who would like to have real power, the Republican presidential field has grown very recently with Tim Scott and, most importantly, Ron DeSantis having announced candidacy. So I want to focus on DeSantis a bit. His campaign is off to a, to put it mildly, a rocky start. It's been described as botched, disastrous, horrendous debacle. Is it a run of bad luck, you know, as with the Twitter debut or just his fundamental weakness as a candidate that's now showing? Look, I think Ron DeSantis is somebody who people like me, who are people on the left, are really, really eager to pan and to underestimate. And I'm very wary of it because when I talk to people in Florida, I talk to people who are like moderates, independents. There's an awful lot of people who really like that guy there. I don't get it, but they really do. Now, yeah, I think he's also kind of an awkward human being. And I do think that that gets pretty well exposed usually in particularly in the presidential primary process. However, I also think that we are living through an era where the Republican electorate in the primary, which is that hard right Newsmax crowd, they kind of don't care about that as much as, as other people used to. Like, it seems to be more of like, I have an idea of what I want, and if I want to make this guy fit into the mold, then I will. And so I still think that, I, look, Trump's still the front runner, that's clear. Whether he's an inmate or not, he seems to be the front runner. And I still think that Ron DeSantis is really the only one who has a real shot to overtake him. And yeah, like it's not good when you do a 20 minute audio only platform of silence to start your presidential announcement. But I also think that that's the kind of thing that Republican primary voters are like, look at these silly media folks talking about that. Like we care, like we care whether he can work Twitter. Like I think that they don't care about that kind of thing. And I think that he and his wife, are going to play well. In, I mean, I've I've done the Iowa thing, and I've done the New Hampshire thing, and I think that they're going to get better at it. It's something you get better at. And I still think he's a real force to be reckoned with. And whether he's good at it right now or not, I think he's going to get better at it. My sense is that he is the Scott Walker of this cycle. Yeah, that he is the guy who looks so much better on paper that the ideological conservatives can say, yeah, he did these things and we all like those. And yeah, he's a little rough around the edges. Yeah, he doesn't know anything about foreign policy. Yeah, he's kind of a geek. But they liked him in Wisconsin and they'll like him elsewhere. And he bombed. Now, it's interesting. The, one of the ways he bombed was because Trump overshadowed everyone on that debate stage and query whether Trump is ever going to get on that debate stage. If I were advising him, I would say, no way. Why do you want to let anyone ask you a, a hard question, even if you're going to blow him back? You could just sit there. Remember when he didn't show up to that one Fox debate and he basically everyone was following his Twitter feed as he's criticizing the people in the debate. So I don't think that's necessarily going to happen. But there is some performance level that Republicans now expect from people. And when you have people like um, Chris Christie, who 
of course, destroyed Marco Rubio. You will have somebody taunting and pointing out kind of the personal ineptitude, the weirdness, the roboticness of this guy. So it's going to be hard, I think, for him to get leverage. But the real problem is no one really wants to disagree with Trump. Like, how do you beat a guy if you're not going to throw a punch? How do you beat a guy if you're going to say, well, yeah, Biden's not really the president? Or how do you beat a guy if you say, oh, yes, the economy was great when Biden took over? COVID what COVID. How do you beat a guy if you're so afraid to crack that, you know, fake worldview that he set up? The problem for DeSantis is the problem for all of them, which is the minute you start criticizing Trump, the Republican voters' knee-jerk reaction is you're the enemy. No matter how conservative you are, you could be to the right of Trump on every issue. And the minute you start criticizing him, you're the enemy. And so he's trying to do this thing where he's like, I'm Trump without the baggage. But eventually they're going to have to clash. And Trump is bashing him at every turn. And he's going to have to criticize him. And then he's going to be the enemy. So as long as Trump's in the race... It's really hard for DeSantis to gain traction. Now, is he a plan B if Trump has to drop out because of criminal charges? Yes. But I don't know how he how he overtakes Trump while he's still there. Let me just follow up on that and contrast with Walker, because he may be the only plan B. So the question may be exactly coextensive with, is there a way that Trump goes down? Not necessarily through DeSantis. You you had a really trenchant column, Jen, about Chris Christie's doing the job of taking down Trump or maybe the actual charges do. So, you know, in that sense, the dynamic is different. Let's talk for a minute about Trump because he's indicted in Manhattan and the public shrugged its shoulders. Do you see serious federal charges being any different? So let's posit that he's indicted and convicted by the time November 2024 rolls around. In the political world, does it matter not a whit? Here's how I think it matters, and I think it's what DeSantis's long-term plan is, is that it plays into DeSantis's main argument, which is, I want to win. And so I, I think at the end of the day, the plan B for DeSantis, the, the move to be plan B, is not necessarily through Trump. It is almost like, make me your second choice by voting for me instead of Trump. It's almost like, look, I think what Trump did was great. We all think what Trump did was great. But at this point, he can't do it anymore. And so what, what he's trying to do, and he's hoping, you're absolutely right, everybody who said it, he's hoping that somebody else will do it for him. He's hoping that Chris Christie comes in and runs a kamikaze mission to get it done. He's, hope, he's hoping that, you know, Jack Smith does it. And he's counting on the idea that with all the different stuff coming at Trump, that there's going to be a window for him to have never really criticized Trump, but be the person who can say, I am Kirkland brand Trump. Like, you know, you, you can't get Trump yeah. anymore, but Costco now stocks me. <laughs> so how about me? All right. Let's close out with just a little attention to the president of the United States. So <laughs> we talked about the debt credit negotiations, which seems his latest outstanding achievement, unless you count the even more recent favorable jobs reports. But, you know, in some ways, he doesn't seem to be getting political credit, or I guess that's a question for all these achievements. Why this sort of disconnect between his actual record in office and his personal popularity and which aspect, the kind of record or the personal hesitation that America has will dominate in voters' minds in 2024? I think 
we're expecting something that political polling doesn't deliver any longer. When we ask the question, do you approve Biden? It's kind of akin to saying, don't you wish a 30-year-old, really lively, witty fellow, kind of like Obama, but without any of his drawbacks, were president? In people's mind, approval means that somehow all the things you don't like about America are fine. We are setting the bar on approval to mean something that voters who are so cynical about government, who are so disenfranchised by the system, who are so cynical, who read a lot of bias, not political bias, but negative bias in the press, which I think is the way you sell you know, news, that they're just not disposed to say they like much of anything. And so that's why they think we're in a recession. You ask them, are we in a recession? They say, yes, we're not remotely in a recession at this point. I mean, we could be, but we've created 13 million jobs. The economy is still growing. We're not anywhere near that. So how do they get that idea? And the idea idea that they're going to say something positive about a politician has now been so denigrated that I think people feel stupid saying things are good or stupid saying, you know, they like a politician. Look at every politician's approval rate. Congress, it's in the teens. Kamala Harris, it's, you know, low. Maybe you can get them to say something nice about their mayor because they know the guy. But other than that, I think we got to kind of get away with this as the end all and be all. We don't know really what people approve or if that matters. The question is going to be answered in the only way that matters, which is on election day. Jennifer, I think that's absolutely right. And I think at the end of the day, where people are on Biden is they're like, eh, he's fine. He's fine. And what Biden is thinking is like, I'm not trying to be the future. I mean, the dude's slogan is finish the job. It's not like, you know, a new generation of leadership. I mean, it's like they just came out with a reelect and it's it's basically like, eh, let him finish. He's been at this a long time. Let him finish. And I think that that's smart. And it's the fact that they've always shown that they don't do their campaign based on what social media says. And they understand that when they get closer to the election, they're going to be like, hey, look at all this stuff we did. But mostly, look at this crazy stuff they want to do. And so, yeah, like, they probably would prefer to run against Trump, I guess. But Ron DeSantis has said some of the most out-of-touch possible stuff about abortion. And that's probably what a lot of the votes in this election are going to swing on is because, you know, to overuse by far a phrase that's been overused a lot ever since the Dobbs decision, these are the dogs that caught the car. And they're just going to keep reminding people of it on this and other issues. And so that's why I don't think you see Biden out there trying to win every news cycle, because I don't think he cares. I think he figures, in, you know, in the end, these people are going to let me finish the job because I've been at it a long time. And they're going to be like, you go ahead and finish and then we'll reset. Yeah. When you talk to voters, there are polls that show like, well, like 70 percent of voters don't want this matchup again, this repeat matchup. And we have this podcast where we interview all these voters uh, called The Run Up that Ested, uh, my colleague, hosts. And there's lots of interviews with voters on that. And they almost always say something like, I don't like Trump because of the chaos, because he's mean, because of corruption and January 6th. And, and then they get to Biden and say, I don't like him either. And usually they say it's because he's old. So that's the big knock against him is just his age. And when he talks, he doesn't seem 100% there. But they can't, they usually don't say any policies they hate or that like the country's in this bad direction or this bill was terrible. It's just about the perception of him being too old. 
you know, I've long thought that Trump was most likely to win the primary, and he's also the candidate most likely to lose to Biden. And as of right now, nothing has changed about that calculation since they both announced, right? Like, that's still where we're headed. And unless, you know, something dramatic changes, I think that's still where this election's going. And Luke, the people who hate both candidates, when you look at those people and they're pressed, Biden has a huge advantage over those people. I think there was a poll, a 39-point advantage in one recent poll of the dual haters. And pressed enough, most Americans don't like either candidate. They've not liked either candidate for several cycles now. But among those, they say, yeah, Biden's fine, fine, we'll go with him. So that's how you wind up with this disconnect between do you approve of him, meaning like, is he your ideal kind of guy? And how you might see Biden win by substantially more than he did last time, frankly. And it wasn't a close election, really. I mean, it was, right. what, 7 million votes? Is that right? right. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty... Luke, it was stolen. It was <laughs> stolen, and you know it. A landslide. <laughs> All right, and there's an end. We are out of time in what's been a really terrific discussion. Thank you very much to Jen, Jason, and Luke. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting daily video content breaking down the big legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, quite rare among the leading law and politics podcasts. So if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Emma Maynard, and Colena Tano. Thank you to Mary Elizabeth Ellis for explaining ag-gag laws. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. <laughs>